Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Eric DeCody. He's a friend of mine from here in Baton Rouge, but he now lives in uh, Tennessee, where he is a project manager at a hospital. So what he is going to tell us about today is managing projects at a hospital during COVID-19, um, which doesn't sound necessarily on the surface like it's STEM-related, except that they have done things like develop a new PPE decontamination system, which I found totally fascinating, and uh, just trying to like manage the medical needs of the hospital with the financial and all of these things. And I just, I just think that the way hospitals work is uh, confusing and intriguing. And so um, Eric and I talk a little bit about all that. So um, yeah, have a listen and enjoy. I am Eric Ticotti, and you have known me for many, many years, playing kickball and tailgating and doing all sorts of fun stuff. And yeah, I'm currently a project manager in the facilities department for the University of Tennessee Medical Center. I started that job at the beginning of February, so right before things went nuts this year. And it is, without a doubt, been interesting. Yeah, so what did you have to, so that's, you know, at the hospital, so what did you have to do while all this was going on? One of the first things we did just as a hospital to respond to the threat of being overwhelmed or being short on PPE and stuff like that was we identified all the different hospital spaces and this was thrown into my lap, which was a, a good introduction to learning the hospital for one, because I was still learning my way around the place. And then it's, hey, I want you to identify every room that has enough medical gas and outlets to be used as an ICU space, you know, if we need it as a temporary basis and, and what's close enough so we can identify any sort of potential overflow spaces for COVID patients or possibly even spaces we can move the ICU patients out to use the ICU for COVID patients. So basically how could we rearrange the hospital to if we do get just an insane amount of patients coming in, how can we rearrange it to keep them as isolated as possible? And of course, there's also a, a mechanical aspect of that, of keeping it all negative pressure so you're not circulating air from those rooms throughout the rest of the hospital. They have to be on their own isolated mechanical system where it's pulling air in from the rest of the hospital and then not pushing it out. We're, we're making things a lot worse. Yeah, negative pressure is one of those things I learned about this year. <laughs> yes, that's a pretty big important thing. I mean, we try to, at a hospital, you really design it to where all of the rooms have their required airflow I and mean, they require a certain amount of air changes per hour. Some of them have to be, you know, outside air, fresh air intakes a certain amount, and some of them can just be recirculation. But so you have a very well controlled air circulation system within a hospital anyway. So it's pretty, I say easy, but it's easier than a lot of places at least to adjust the airflow to create negative pressure rooms and, and positive pressure spaces that are pushing into the negative pressure rooms. And that's, that's a big concern, especially when you have airborne pathogens. But even before COVID, that's a big concern in a hospital. Yeah. And then the other big concern we had back in March, you know, when all this started going crazy was how do we conserve PPE uh, and essentially how, how can we reuse it? All of this stuff like the N95 masks that the people that the hospital staff uses when they're dealing with these patients are all the masks, the, the boots, the gloves, the gowns, everything is designed to be one-time use, you know, use it, dispose of it because it's contaminated at that point. Um, so we try to figure out a way to reuse that in as much of a safe way as possible. And the hospital, before I was there, back when Ebola was a big concern, had purchased a BioQuell system, which is essentially a vaporized hydrogen peroxide machine. It takes canisters of compressed liquid and hydrogen peroxide, disperses it throughout a room, um, you know, of course, principles of physics will tell you that it'll fill the, you know, the volume that it's in. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was designed to treat, if you had an Ebola patient or some other 
disease like that that's that's you absolutely don't want it getting around that's you want any of them getting around but one of them that's like ebola is why the hospital bought it if you had a patient in the room that had ebola when they're done you go in there with your protective gear on and you can plug up the air vents open all the drawers everything like that and then basically release the bioquel system you have to tape up the doors and all that fun stuff to make sure all that air stays in and it releases a hydrogen peroxide vapor that fills the room let it sit for however long it takes usually a couple hours to soak in everything and that'll kill 99.9999 percent of pathogens in the room uh, whether it's virus bacteria etc so this was designed to be a portable system it's got it's the big compressor that does all the air things and then uh, it's got some I guess vaporizers that when it's done will actually convert it back into separated into oxygen and uh, water vapor to make it less harmful because obviously hydrogen peroxide would be very toxic for for you or I as well yeah so we decided that we had this system rather than go to room to room to use it we took a warehouse space that we had available and I say available we had to kick some maintenance people out but they were okay with it so we took a warehouse space and created an assembly line of go into one room with all of the contaminated PPE and then you have a second room which was our decontamination room that's where we would have this system set up uh, we'd reel wheel all of the you know masks and everything else in on wire racks so that it had as much surface exposure as possible uh, in that room we completely it wasn't redesigned the room existed but we reconfigured it with put wall on you know the, the frp walls on security that we cleaned uh, went and sealed every ceiling tile and light to contain all this vapor uh, we had to seal the electrical outlets and the light switches everything like that we even rewired some of it to where some of those could all be like the light switches and stuff could be controlled from the outside of the room uh, and then put two new doors into the room so that we could have one door to where it was like the control room where you had the podium is what they call it for this bioquel thing so you could see the controls working from the outside and then the second door we created was to go into the drying rooms because all this stuff is very humid wet when it comes out of this system it's turned into water vapor at that point so it's not contaminated but it all needs to dry so it's an assembly line system and then from there we would take all these wire racks of ppe and had four different zones to sort because the thought was at the time that this would be used by multiple different hospitals in the area they can bring in their plastic bins of contaminated masks and other stuff and have their turn running it through it was about a eight hour process from start to finish from wow. wheeling all the stuff in there because it takes a while to sit and it's dwell period is what they call it where it's just doing its thing and killing all of the virus and then it's got to take a while to vaporize back into a non-toxic atmosphere so that then people can go in there and wheel these racks out and then of course the whole setup and wheeling them out drying it it, it took a while but that was one of the first things I was tasked with was when this started was how can we create this space that fits this process to bring contaminated stuff in, clean it, and then send it out. And we fortunately had a pretty good space for it where we could create a, a linear assembly line to where you weren't ever cross-contaminating. You weren't ever bringing the clean stuff back through the same entrance or through the same rooms with dirty PPE. So it was able to go through a pretty streamlined process. It was roundabout in its actual path, but as far as like step to step to step, there was no going back over your own, you know, back over your own footprint. So you could keep it all clean once it was clean. And of course we had some of our process engineers and everything working on all the proper PPE requirements. We had mechanical guys making sure we had enough airflow in that room to ventilate once it was done you had electricians helping we had a, a lot of people helping out it was something that we were able to do in a matter of weeks have this entire thing built up and running in a what was an old warehouse space that was an intriguing project and, and 
something that we're actually using a lot now. Back in March, we didn't have an issue. We got lucky. Um, like I said, University of Tennessee now, so Knoxville, Tennessee, and we had hardly anything in the first wave of coronavirus. You know, mm -hmm. we got really lucky there, and we went through. We had, I think, five deaths in March, April, and didn't have a single death in the county in May and June. Wow, zero. Yeah. Total. And great. July has been a little bit worse. I think we're up to low 50s, which still compared to a lot of places is yeah. not bad at all. Yeah. And we're finally starting to see, you know, the case increase and the death rate kind of start to plateau again. So we had, a, we had hit our spike in July instead of March and April, like a lot of places. And hopefully that's, hopefully that's it here. Hopefully this is the spike and then we're on the downhill the whole way through, but you never know. Yeah, that would be nice if that is true. Um, yeah, it would be, but schools are opening up, I think, tomorrow. This is, yeah. uh, today is the 23rd of Sunday when we're talking, and tomorrow is Monday. I'm pretty sure schools in the county are going back open, so I wouldn't be surprised to see some case increases when that happens. Yeah, probably. That seems to be the case everywhere else. Um, yeah. Around the country where school has already started, or like where universities have already opened. Yeah, the County next to us was the first one in the country to reopen schools in person. And they haven't had too much of an increase, but they're not as populated. And so it hasn't seemed to be a huge factor yet, but I think once the, the Knox County schools go in, we're gonna we're gonna see a little bit of an increase, but we've been pretty consistent and haven't had to shut anything back down yet, at least, fortunately. Yeah, it's better in a lot of places. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in this PPE decontamination process because I love it because it's creative, it solves a massive problem, and it makes things reusable that even though they weren't designed to be reused. And I love that because it avoids some waste, even though the reason it was done was because you had a lack of new PPE. Um, but I still think it's cool. Is this something that's like, gonna keep being used for things or is it just gonna use until maybe this pandemic is over and then who knows? I see there being some use of this as a long-term thing. I think your your N95 masks are probably not something that's gonna be decontaminated on a mass scale in the future when this isn't a, a pandemic issue, but you have some, you know, paper hoods and some of the other things that people wear that are a more expensive, more mm -hmm. substance to them that uh, could easily be decontaminated and reused. You know, some of those, uh, like if you're a guy like me who has a beard, you don't wear an N95 mask if you have to, to be in that hospital. Now, I don't, I'm in the facility side, I don't go work with patients, mm -hmm. but I still had to go through all the fit testing and everything for that. And yeah. if you have facial hair, you don't wear a in 95 mask because it's not going to seal all the way. It's not going to get you what you need. So I have to wear a whole big hood that goes over my head and down over my shoulders with a, essentially a fanny pack with a pump on it that pumps purified air into the hood. And those are the kind of things that absolutely you could sanitize that. I spent one afternoon actually while we were doing our fantasy baseball draft way back when, before the season got postponed. Uh, creating a prototype of a peep, uh, I used just a um, little PVC conduit, but essentially making a portable rack that you could wheel in with all these hoods on it and it'll hold them open so they can be decontaminated and then wheel it on into the drawing room. And mm -hmm. the, from the prototype I, type I built, the our, some of our carpentry guys actually went and bought a lot of the PVC and all the joints they needed and the wheels and everything and ended up making three heavy duty glued together racks that they could wheel in and then you could do each one could fit 12 hoods so you could do 36 in one pass of course you also had a lot of room in there this was happening like when you're doing all of the N95 masks and boots and everything else as well so yeah I mean we originally in, in our minds had it as a this virus is going to spike in April kind of thought and we're going to need a lot more N95 masks at the time. I think 
our safety guys were telling me we had a roughly a month's supply if we weren't getting restocked at all. So that at the time, we didn't think that was going to last very long and we, uh, we didn't know when we were going to get restocked and then everybody needed them. So at most places need them, needed them far worse than we did. So yeah. the thought was, well, we can do this and then we can, it's still not going to go forever. Even doing the decontamination process, we, um, we're planning on, I think, 20 uses per mask max. Uh, and since there's no way to really track that built into a, a mask or anything, it's like they have a serial number you can write down and mm -hmm. send it on through. We, we started just using a Sharpie and you put a tick mark on the band every time it went through. And when that hit 20, it was, okay, well, this mask is done. And it that's more because the elastic stretches out and then you're not getting the the proper fit it's got to be tight against your face to actually protect the user against airborne pathogens right. so we still had to worry about it this isn't an indefinite solution it's not like masks are going to last forever because they do right. have to. but it was a way to use them multiple times instead of once like they're designed for or had been the practice before at least uh, yeah. and this system of using the bioquel which is a, a, of course, a product name. That's um, a company that makes this system. They originally started, or at least the first time I saw it in use was at Duke University, Duke's Medical Center. And they had put out some videos on how they were using it to do, to do this exact process. And this was, I think, a matter of weeks before we said, you know what, we have one of those systems. We have space to do this. And basically created the same, around about the same system. Yeah. And it wasn't supposed to still be in use here in August. And we've been using it more lately than we ever did back at the start of this. You know, the thought was this would really be a two, three month thing. And, and that was it. So it's <laughs> still going. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that it's going to go on in perpetuity, but I definitely don't think it's going away anytime too soon. Yeah. That was my next question was that I was wondering if you knew of any other hospitals that were doing something like this, you know, um, but it sounds like Duke is. Yeah, Duke was the, like I said, the first one that I saw uh, and they'd put out some good publications about it and videos about it. And they were a very valuable resource um, when we were putting this together as far as a, just an example of, Hey, how are they doing this and, and what can we do to, at least use their best practices and, and put them into effect in our hospital. And it, it worked well. It, the first run we did was not a hundred percent effective. Um, it's, they give you essentially biological markers and chemical markers to put in. And we had, we ran in masks. We put all of the gear on the racks and put these markers all over it just to see well, where are we getting the, the spread? Is it getting throughout everything? And the goal is to get a six logarithmic scale of pathogen destruction, essentially. And I think we were only at five, which means you're killing 99.999% of the virus instead of 99.9999. So, I mean, you might say, oh, that's hardly anything, but it's really 10 times more out there than, you know, if you do it all the way. Yeah. So it, it's one of those, you know, exponential scale things where it's, you don't want 10 times more virus, even if it is still a very small number, it's 10 times more. So we essentially worked on making sure the room was as sealed as possible, uh, ran it through again a second time and hit, you know, full levels on all those markers. So uh, the biggest problem we had was just the vaporizing time. It took hours for all of the hydrogen peroxide vapor to condense back into either water or oxygen uh, to create a, a suitable environment to go in and actually move the racks out. Um, and we would have a, essentially a sensor a little monitor that you, you took the, uh, the door where the control room was and pull the tape down on the bottom and see how what's coming through that little gap. And if that's still registering hydrogen peroxide, then well, okay. Put the tape back down, 
let it give it up some more time. Uh, and uh, we had looked into different ways to ventilate that. Could we do just like a, a bathroom exhaust or something like that? And the answer was no, that's not going to be suitable for hydrogen peroxide. It'll start to deteriorate. We could do a full on commercial, like almost what you would use for a commercial oven hood like put it in the ceiling and then hit a switch and boom, vent all of it out. And our concern with that was honestly that if we create such a vacuum, because we sealed this room as much as possible on all the walls, the floor, ceiling, everything, if we pull too much air of it at once, it's actually going to start to crumple the walls like a, like crushing a can almost if we <laughs> create too much of a vacuum. So it's like, well, how do we do it without completely creating a vacuum and, and imploding the room, but also get the hydrogen peroxide out as fast as possible. And then you also have the issue of if you're shooting it all out into the, onto the roof, this building's right in the middle of, not in the middle, but right on the edge of the hospital. Like we don't want to be poisoning people. Right. Uh, now, I honestly think once it's not, it's a pretty small room. I think it was only not even maybe 200 square feet. So it wasn't a, a big room. Mm -hmm. So honestly, the amount of hydrogen peroxide in the atmosphere, once it gets dispersed, is almost certainly going to be non-toxic levels by the time it gets a few feet from the vent. But still, we didn't really want to do that. Right. Uh, so it ends up being we're just taking the time to let it, let it do its thing on its own, as opposed to mechanically venting and, and forcing that process. And if we were to get a far worse scenario where we had to speed that up, then we have options. But so far, we haven't needed to run so many through once that we need to speed up the process. Yeah, well, that's good, though. How were y'all running this like once a day? And he said it was eight hours. So I didn't know if you run running it like once or twice a day or if it was like around the clock. <laughs> I don't know. The original thought was around the clock. And the original thought was that we would allow other hospitals in the area to bring their bins of contaminated masks and everything over. And I mean, it's our hospital, so we get like the good shift, but you know, if, if some other hospital wants to come in and, and have some people come in at night and run it through, I mean, we thought we could do it where we, and we had our drying rooms planned where we had spaces for drying. So in theory, you could have one round going in the decontamination room while you have two drying rooms full. And then we had three big areas marked out on the floor for sorting. So that each, actually we made four, because there were four different hospital systems that were in the region that we're thinking about maybe using this. So we have four different sorting areas that would be then assigned to each hospital system. Uh, and then you could use that to sort and put all the clean ones into the bins once it was dried and then take it back to their hospital. So we thought that this would be a, or at least it was created, conceptualized as a round the clock process to where we'd constantly have contaminated PPE coming in and people in full protective gear, putting all of that on the racks, moving it into the room, decontaminating, moving it into a drying rack. And of course, as soon as that one gets shifted out into a drying room, whatever was in that drying room has just moved over to the sorting area. Whatever was in the, you know, prep room was being put back on the next racks and moving in. And it was, it was kind of designed to be a assembly line almost of decontamination. We just have, didn't have the need, yeah. um, which is fortunate. Yeah, it is. But it's the, the option is there. We, we bought enough stuff to do it. You know, we, we had, the room would fit 10 wire racks on wheels in it, which each one of them could, I believe, hold almost 200 masks. So we could get about, what, 20,000 almost masks through there in one round. So it was, and then we bought 30 of those racks. So you could have one whole set in the room, one set in the drying room, one set in the other drying room, so that you could, in theory, have 60,000 masks going through there in a day being cleaned plus all of the hoods or boots or whatever else you have. Uh, like I said, we just fortunately never needed that volume to go through there at any given day. So right now we're using it well, maybe only a few times a week 
just because we're not seeing the volume of PPE go through there, but it is still being used. I mean, it's this is yeah. five months later, yeah, and it's still going. So, yeah, I mean, this pandemic, I think, is just going to linger on for a while here. So it's good that y'all have that um, and have more capacity than you're currently using, and also good you don't need all that capacity. Yeah, all of that's good, and it's good that we have you know the ability to help out the other hospitals in the area. You know, we kind of all obviously see it as a team effort to yeah. tackling this pandemic. So sure. anything we can do to help out. Yeah, we're not going to get through this pandemic, uh, you know, by one on, you know, solo activities. You can, we're going to have to work together. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's how you end up with one hospital getting overwhelmed while you, another one is sitting there with plenty of open space and unfortunately we haven't been overwhelmed we've actually been seeing our positive patient numbers go down in the last few weeks uh, so that's that's a good thing i mean it was it had bottomed out in may and june here we didn't know i think there was a time when we didn't have a single positive inpatient wow. and then it it spiked and we got up to i think upper 40s maybe even 50 which is still a pretty small number compared to a lot of places. Yeah. And it's been going down over the last few weeks to where we're about half of what we had at the most right now. Uh, and we planned, we're, we still have projects going on right now to rearrange some space and make sure we have overflow. We have that first, second, third levels of surge space if, if necessary. And, all the hospitals around here are doing the same thing. I'm sure all the hospitals in the country are doing the same thing. Probably, yeah. If they haven't already. I mean, we've been planning, like I said, to one of the first things we did was identify some of those spaces. And then mm -hmm. when case counts started to finally creep up here, you know, is start putting some of that into practice. And fortunately, the State Department of Health has been very good about running through these COVID projects and allowing it to be fast-tracked to some degree. I mean, sometimes they would take weeks to get a, if not months, to get some of these hospital projects approved by the Department of Health, but they're turning over some of these COVID projects in a week, if not sooner. So they've been very good helping us out, making sure we have all the resources available and all the space available. Yeah, that's good. Y'all are in such a better situation there than here. Oh my goodness. We are. Uh, I mean, Knox County is about the same population as East Baton Rouge Parish. Oh, really? Oh. It, it's about the same, like, density layout. I mean, there's, just like East Baton Rouge, there's part of a very concentrated population around downtown university, things like that. And then it's, most, a lot of it's very rural, like, just like the northern part of East Baton Rouge Parish is quite rural. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very similar population number and population density and we're just nowhere close to the impact that you guys have you know have suffered and i haven't looked at the latest counts on east baton rouge i know it's yeah, i've stopped looking <laughs> no it's not good i mean we're sitting right around five thousand positive cases and 50 deaths i think maybe a little bit um it's being more positive cases than that because the death rate isn't that high that would, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really been a, a different situation than a lot of the countries faced. Yeah. I mean, Tennessee as a whole had been seeing a lot of bad numbers, but I think it was mostly concentrated around Memphis and Nashville, mm -hmm. uh, which is understandable. I mean, the bigger yeah. cities typically took the worst of it, mm -hmm. just yeah. like New Orleans. Well, yeah, New Orleans said the, double whammy of, uh, well, but I don't know. Yeah. It had Mardi Gras also beforehand, before we knew that this was like really a problem. Yeah. Which definitely didn't help, I'm sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So what else are you doing for at the hospital? Um, what are the kind of projects you have to manage while this other things are going on as well? Oh, all sorts. Just three weeks ago now, broke ground on a new 1200 parking space garage that's going right in the middle of the hospital and disrupting all sorts of traffic flow and pedestrian flow. And 
So just, you know, generally making that things inconvenient for everybody in the midst of an already inconvenient time, but yeah. it's solving a problem and that the hospital doesn't even are close to enough parking. Mm-hmm. Although to be completely honest, the pandemic has helped out with that a lot because we're, you know, not allowing visitors to the same degree where people aren't coming in for just anything anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, for a while we were on completely no visitors at all. Like if you were in the hospital, you were had to come by yourself, no visitors, period. Uh, now it, everybody's allowed one. You know, if you're in a room, you're allowed one visitor and it's just one period while you're in the room. You have to put who that is down and they're the only person allowed to come in and visit. But if you're just coming in for a surgery or appointment, something like that, everybody's allowed one person with them now. For a while, that wasn't even the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the traffic inside the hospital has picked up. For a while there, it it was creepy, ghost town. Like if I was walking through the hallway to go look at a project, it was hardly anybody there. Whereas, you know, when I started back in February, the wall is packed. There's people everywhere. I mean, it's, it's a busy, bustling place. And it's starting to finally see a little bit more of that, but nowhere close to what was normal. And so, yeah, we're working on that parking garage. That's a obviously a little bit completely different type of project. That's a just legitimate building construction. We're not worried about medical <laughs> impact. I mean, right. impact, yes, but we are putting medical gas or anything like that. We are putting patients in a parking garage. Um, although, speaking of that, we do have another parking garage on campus where we're using the lower level for like the triage, oh. like a COVID triage. We originally put up a big tent outside of the emergency room um, where you can, people who are worried that they were positive, who are showing symptoms could come in, get treated, get tested, get sent home so they could quarantine if if they were not, you know, needing immediate medical help at least. Um, And that was where anybody who thought they might be coming in with COVID would would come to first, again, to keep that away from the rest of the hospital. I mean, the the hospital still has to function for all of those, all those other processes and procedures and emergencies. I mean, there's more going out there than just COVID, especially, you know, over the summer, you typically see more of the accidents and sports accidents and boating accidents and things like that. Um, and then eventually the problem was that the weather was really nice here back in March and April and even May and now it's really hot. So we're realizing that, okay, this tent was supposed to only be here for a few months in the, in the spring and now it's just, we can't keep it cool even with some portable air conditioning. So we're gonna move it to lower level of a parking garage where it's shaded just kind of create, keep some of that sun heat off of it and still allow uh, this to serve as a triage space for anybody coming in who might be experiencing COVID symptoms to get evaluated, treated, tested, uh, and if necessary, you know, taken back to one of the, one of the COVID wings and, and treated. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been directly involved in that project, but again, I know it's been something that's probably going to be completely switched over in the next week or two to help out just kind of make it a less miserable place to be working or or uh visiting not that you ever want to visit any place like that but yeah try to ease make make the experience a little less miserable less hot and humid (laughs) right yeah. yeah yeah so we're doing all that and then everybody's been taking their turn working the checkpoints. We have visitor checkpoints at the, essentially four different entrances to the hospital. So I've had to do that once a week, go spend a few hours just monitoring everybody's temperature, making sure they aren't presenting with any symptoms and, and try to enforce the visitor rules as best as possible. It's tough sometimes when you have, um, you know, a lot of, uh, pediatric appointments going on and you'll have a a mother with or father with one like six-year-old going in for an appointment and then their two-year-old with them and technically they are allowed to have both kids in like so what are you supposed to say to those people like I'm sorry you have to leave your your two-year-old here no that doesn't work right (laughs) try to just be a little understanding that hey you know you gotta do what you gotta do I mean if, if we can't 
I don't want you to have to like sacrifice the health of your six-year-old that has an appointment, even if it is just a wellness checkup or something. I mean, you got to make sure everything's right. And, right. Uh, and that's tough. I mean, you don't want to be, I don't know, make a judgment call, I guess. Uh, but if you have four people trying to come into one person's appointment, that's an adult. It's like, okay, that's, we clearly don't need four extra or three extra people. Mm-hmm in the hospital right now that's that's what we're trying to avoid we're trying right, to yeah. keep the anybody extraneous to a minimum because the last thing we want is an outbreak in the hospital amongst mm-hmm. staff and, and patients and you know nurses and doctors so uh, that's been an interesting experience working the checkpoints and it's just seeing everybody coming in that it, it's it's almost business as usual but it's not you know, they think it is, but we're trying to tell them, no, we're still really worried about this. We're still taking it very seriously. Uh, and visitor restrictions are still in place and they probably will be for a while. Yeah. And I understand that's hard. That's really hard when you're in the ICU recovering or, mm-hmm. or even whatever you're in the hospital for. If you're in one of those, you know, bed and you're there for a long term, then it's tough not being able to have multiple visitors, not being able to see those family members, the friends, the, you know, that I, mean, I remember when last time I guess I was in the hospital for that length of time was when Brooks was born, you know, and he was in the NICU for three weeks uh, and Mandy was in there for a few nights after and anybody who wanted to could just come up and visit. Now, the, the NICU was a little different, but we still were allowed to have I don't remember six or seven people on our list of approved visitors and mm-hmm. come into the NICU and, and could see Brooks and could see us. And then what he wanted to come up and see Mandy when she was in her room at, at Woman's, that was back at Baton Rouge. So mm-hmm. it would have been real tough to have him in the NICU for three weeks and not be able to have, you know, his grandparents go see him or something like that. So yeah. that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. And they do allow, the one exception where both parents can go in with like a, you know, mother and infant kind of situation. So they aren't like refusing to let the dad in, in that situation, but that's one of the few exceptions. Yeah. So uh, it's just been an interesting time. Interesting to see that kind of thing and, and something I never really would have thought about if I wasn't working at a hospital through all of this. Yeah. And, I'm just lucky I, I haven't had to, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not a, a medical professional. I'm on the facility side of thing, but I've learned more about the medical side of this in the last six months than I probably learned in my first 40 years. It's, it's amazing how fast you have to learn everything that goes into a hospital. Yeah, well, and because and you came on at a time when things like immediately changed from whatever normal was to now this crazy pandemic on top of, you know, learning, working in a hospital. Now she didn't work at a hospital before. <laughs> no, no. And I, I never worked at a hospital. I'd done the same essential job. I'd worked for city of Baton Rouge doing project management, but we didn't, we didn't have hospitals. Right. The only project I worked on in a hospital was actually taking woman's hospital, the old one, when the city bought it and turning it into non-hospital space. So mm-hmm. I'd taken apart a hospital. I never put one together. I've done the opposite, yeah. A lot of systems that you would never have in a normal just office space that go into this. Just the amount of IT and data networks because everything now is computerized. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's nothing we do that doesn't need a data outlet that's on the on our network, it seems, or at least very little. You know, and then it all ties it all ties back together. And we have wireless monitoring systems where some areas need additional wireless access because while patients are being moved around and they are plugged into the wall, essentially, there's a wireless monitoring system that's relaying all of their vital signs to somewhere else in the hospital. So if somebody has an issue and, and a patient crashes essentially with while they're being moved from room to room there's alert systems to that so nurses can know, hey, where are they, how to get to them, that sort of thing. I, I would have never thought about that before, but now I'm learning all that on the fly and then throw in COVID. It's right. been interesting. 
it is, I feel like it would be interesting for you post pandemic, whenever that may be, to see what like the hospital's really like, I guess, you know? It will be. It was also kind of weird for me because through essentially in, in late March, when the things started shutting down everywhere, we shut down as well. Uh, and we cut all of those, you know, vol voluntary procedures, you know, all of that sort of thing was, was slashed. They stopped doing it, trying to keep, the, basically create, make the hospital as minimal patients as possible, just in case we did get it bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and that created, of course, big time budget issues. So we had a lot of projects get put on hold that I had been working on. So there's a stretch there where about the only thing I was doing was all the COVID stuff, COVID prep, because those were the projects that were important at that point. I mean, everything else was kind of taking a back seat for a couple of months. And now, now we've started, you know, allowing those elective procedures again. We've got a little bit more visitors coming in. Um, so the, the budget has gone back up and a lot of these projects are taking off, taking off hold. Mm -hmm. So it's starting to get back to work like normal for me, but it's still not quite. Yeah, I don't really know how hospitals work in reality because I've not spent very much time in a hospital, not really. Uh, and my main exposure <laughs> is Scrubs and Grey's Anatomy. That's <laughs> my main exposure with hospitals. I feel like uh, that was maybe not that realistic, but I don't know. Probably not quite. Now, to be, to be fair, I haven't exactly hung out in the emergency room a whole lot. You know, that's... Makes sense. Why would I? I'd just be in the way if I was... Yeah doing that. I mean, there's just no point in me being there unless I really have a good reason to be for a, a project that I'm working on or something like that. I mean, I'd, even when I'm just going through the hallway that, like normal and a lot of the projects I'm working on, one of the big ones is I have at least three projects right now going on in our radiology department. Hmm. So a lot of times you'll get people coming through on, on uh, you know, on their hospital beds because they need a quick CT scan or something like that to try to evaluate a problem. It's also mm -hmm. the primary stroke response unit in the area. So if somebody's having a stroke, they can get them into this area as quickly as possible, get them on one of these um, machines that'll hopefully evaluate really quickly where it's happening so it can be caught and, and mm -hmm. surgically fixed before it becomes worse. And I'm constantly having to shrink into a corner to let people rush by like, okay, I am, I am not the priority here. Never will be obviously patients. Sure. Always come first. I spent a lot of, not a lot of time, but plenty of time just trying to make myself as out of the way as possible. But, um, you know, while trying to do my job and make sure some of these renovations and stuff are happening and are happening as safely as possible for the hospital, because the last thing we want is construction work to be, you know, affecting the regular hospital operations around us and that's our that's our main goal i mean i'd say that's probably even more important than price or time is making sure that it's minimal disruptions to mm -hmm. the normal flow of the hospital whenever we're working on a, a project inside the hospital and, and most of them are most of the projects we're working on are happening it's renovation work on the inside of the hospital it's mm -hmm. not too much new construction parking garage is one but that's an outlier from what I've been doing so far. Most of it is within the hospital itself. Mm -hmm. just, with the way technology changes and the way needs change, it, it's just a constant evolution of how to best configure the space we have to treat patients. So I get to work with all those doctors and nurses and IT people and all of our biomed guys and girls and help design them spaces that allow them to treat patients the best. I feel like the medical field and, you know, hospitals and all those sorts of environments are got to be one of the most quickly changing places out there. You know, like, you know, it takes many years for my science to change or something, you know, or to do a different project. But like, I feel like in medicine, it's, man, it can change like that. Yeah, one of the projects I've been working on that's still just in preliminary design is a new linear accelerator, mm -hmm. 
which is essentially pinpoint radiation therapy, where it can put in a, a little itty bitty stream of radiation right where they want to on a patient, but it also is extremely radioactive to where it's got two foot thick concrete walls all the way around it and a six inch thick lead door. Um, and the patient, of course, has to be completely shielded other than the little point they're trying to pin, you know, hit. So mm -hmm. working on preliminary, that's in a very preliminary stage, but putting any one of those in just because that technology increases so fast that there's new stuff out there. We need a new one and it's apparently proving very effective. So they, they just want more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. Right. Got to evolve yep. with, with everything else, with the new stuff. Exactly, new technology. And then every time there's new technology, there has to be, you know, the new infrastructure to support it. Mm -hmm. And it's all in the interest of treating patients as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible, effectively as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Modern medicine is fairly astounding when you stop and think about it. Like all of the things that humans have figured out about the body and ways and creative solutions to treat things. It's really impressive. It is. I'm constantly impressed with the stuff that goes on around me and I, I try to absorb it. I'm nowhere near smart enough to do that, but it's very impressive to me. And I, I have been doing my best to, when I can, when I have a, a moment, I can actually observe some of the medical action and process. Like even if I'm just sitting back in the control room of one of these machines, like actually seeing what's going on in there and how they're using it. Cause I feel like the, the more I know that, the more I understand that, the, the better I can be at, at doing my job and creating the spaces for them to work and make sure that it has everything they need. Mm -hmm even though there's no way I would want to do their job. Right. I want to understand it as best I can. Well, and I think just understanding the environment you work in makes you a better project manager and makes you just a better employee all around, probably. So oh, absolutely. I think so. That's the goal. I would think so. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. I always feel like on a new job, it takes like six months to really get the swing of things. But in your first six months, you know, lay of the land and then bam pandemic oh. absolutely i got there and there they threw me on this parking garage project which was in the middle of being designed but they needed somebody that could really handle it. i was like like yeah absolutely let's do it mm -hmm. and then it got put on hold for two months sure. while we dealt with pandemic and now that's back while we're still dealing with pandemic mm -hmm. uh, in fact that's back while we're dealing with worse pandemic than we ever did at the beginning so yeah I mean, we were, we were slow to the point where through all of April and May, all the hospital employees, unless you were critical, like treating the COVID patients we had, uh, were on 32 hour weeks. You know, mm. we just, there wasn't the funding coming in to support sure, yeah. the full time for everybody. You know, everybody was using leave time for the extra day because that apparently comes from a different pot of money, but. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. The way hospitals budget are funded, the way the money flows through a hospital, it just, it boggles my mind, honestly. I understand it all. I try to put together budgets for projects and I can tell them how much I think this is going to cost. And I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at getting it really close, mm -hmm. but where that money comes from in the big picture of the whole, all the money coming in and out of the hospital, that that's on a different level. And that's not something I'm worried about. As long as they give me enough money in an account to do the project I'm working on, then, sure. then I'm happy. That's why there are budget experts. And, you know, obviously we're it, just like any other place. We're constantly asking for money for projects that aren't getting approved. So we have a lot of projects that are sitting out there like, we need money to do this one. Mm -hmm. We need money for this project. These people really want this. But, you know, that's just some, how it works. I think that's probably every industry, every profession, there's always yeah more desire yeah. than there is supply for that yeah it sounds similar to you know coastal restoration in louisiana there's i'm going to make up numbers say there's 200 projects and they have money for like 15 of them i'm making these numbers up so they pick which 15 right we'll make like the most bang for your buck basically but then they're like oh if we had more money we could do these other 100 and however many 
I'm sure that's true a lot of places, you know. Things always to do. It was the same thing when I worked for the city of Baton Rouge. We had a list of mm -hmm. 20, 30 projects every year that, you know, my department would submit for capital improvements like, hey, we really need money to improve this building or fix the roof on this one or et cetera. And you know, most of them never got approved. And the next year we'd say, hey, we still need to do this. And now it's going to cost a little more because of inflation. Yeah. Next year, hey, we still need to do this, but now it's going to cost a little more because of inflation. But, yeah. you know, when the demand exceeds the supply in that kind of situation, somebody has to pick and choose what gets funded and what gets delayed. So, yeah, I'm glad that's not my job. That's no, mine either. I try to yeah. advise them on what I think would give them the most bang for the buck, but it's their decisions to make the call ultimately. Sure, yeah. Because, again, I don't know, I'm, I'm not privy to all of the revenue information and if we're building a new linear accelerator for the hospital, I don't know what kind of revenue that is going to bring in when it's completed versus some of these other projects. Right. Yeah. Um, and they're always looking at the bottom line too. I mean, it's, it is still, even if it is healthcare, it is a business and mm -hmm. they have to financially operate. Yeah, it's tough. I'm glad that, like I said, I'm glad that's not my job. No, thank you. Is there anything else you want to talk about? You know, this work, Managing projects, working in a hospital, living in Knoxville and being awesome. Knoxville's a lot of fun. I have thoroughly enjoyed moving here. We've been here for, let's see, it's August, so 15 months now. Again, kind of a weird time. We had a, a good half a year or so to, a little more than that, to enjoy it and learn our way around and, and go out to places. And then the last six months have been not quite the same fun. Uh, right. A lot more sitting at home, but a lot more getting to know our neighbors and stuff like that, too. And, uh, yeah, so, silver lining, I guess, you know. Yeah, definitely when all the kids were working, you know, going to school from home. And mostly, I think it was all the extracurriculars were cut. I guess just everybody had time to do it all of a sudden when normally they'd be, like I said, running to softball practice or dance lessons or whatever they were doing. So, I mean, that is that is one silver lining of all of this. And it's just different and it's kind of, it has put a damper on us getting out and really exploring the city, you know, and, and things around us, but that's okay. There's plenty of time for us to do that. We still really like it here. And hopefully uh, everybody back home's doing well. Yeah, so for me, the way things have been is my field work immediately was shut down in early March. Which was the right decision because we really didn't know how bad it was going to get. And we also didn't really know what to do yet, you know, like how to do it safely. And we spent a lot of time in New Orleans. So that was like the center, you know, so we didn't, we had a lot of field work shut down. We started field work again in late May as day trips, you know, driving separate vehicles. If you're not a dedicated crew, wearing face masks, you know, staying far apart as you can, you know, on a boat, which isn't that big, but you know, you're outside at least. Yeah. All these things. So that's all relatively safe. I mean, we're just, we're going out, there ain't nobody out there anyway, going to gas stations, but just, I don't, I try not to go in the gas station if I don't have to. So then pumping gas is pretty low risk. So, you know, all that's fine. Yeah. But then one of the things that I've really discovered that I love is having so much free time, like not obligated to be places. And, you know, I guess I had gotten in this routine of like, okay, on Tuesdays I have kickball, and this night I have this, and this night I have this, you know, after, like, everything. And not that I don't love playing kickball, but, man, it's, like, kind of nice to be like, all right, I'm off work, uh, and I work from home when I'm not in the field because we don't have an office anymore. What am I going to do for, like, the next six hours? <laughs> like, it's kind of nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dog has made out like a bandit because I'm home all the time unless I'm in the field. Like I said, we don't have an office anymore, so I'm either field work or telework. Yeah, it's actually, I'm actually real, and I'm, but I'm on the introverted side, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of okay with being home a lot. Um, I do miss like getting food with friends. What are you going to do right now? So. Yeah, I mean, you could always have your, your little small bubble of friends and get together every now and then. Yeah, you just try to keep it to a minimum. Yeah, it's totally, you know, everybody's got their, their level of risk, you know, that they're comfortable with, I guess, and. I am always been more risk averse than most, which is fine. But so I've pretty much only seen my coworker, but she and I hang out outside of work 
anyway before all this so like i see her at work and we go for a bike ride or whatever but we're already spending so much time together that it's not like an additional level of anything and that's been enough for me i've been you know calling friends more frequently and just talking on the phone occasionally and like that kind of satisfies like my social interaction needs which are pretty low to begin with yeah that's one thing we i had started doing stuff with one of the homebrew clubs here. So when all this happened, we'd started doing virtual meetings and that was fun to hang out. And and then because this is all virtual now, I was able to join in on a few of the Baton Rouge homebrew club meetings that I used to play, you know, brew with. with. So I could see them and say hi to everybody. And and unlike most people, I never got to work from home through all of this. Mm. We geared up for it you know, put some plans in place for file sharing and all that just yeah. in case. Uh, but then we never reached the, the point where we felt it was necessary. You know, our projects didn't stop. If we had stopped, if we had shut down like the actual projects going on that had been going on inside the hospital, like the ones that were in progress, if those had yeah. shut down, we probably would have moved to working from home. But mm-hmm. we never had a, a bad enough situation here to shut those down entirely. We just had to keep taking all the precautions and so I, I haven't missed a day of work other than the mandatory ones since this started. Yeah. Yeah. I was never set up to telework prior to this because I I do mostly field work, right? I can't do that remotely. Um, and then everything else I do was always like database or whatever. And I might work computer as a desktop computer and I can't just like take that home. But luckily, like in the fall, they had set us up a laptop that we could take in the field. I have this laptop now that I can use to like put a remote into my desktop, which has all the programs I need and do it all that way, which is takes longer, but whatever, it's fine. Because like I said, we moved out of our offices, which is unrelated to the pandemic. But so that made that transition from not going to the office, but having one to having no office fairly easy, I guess. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. So you're probably not ever going back to a physical office? Not anytime soon. They're, they haven't found us a new office yet. So someday. That's one side effect of this whole pandemic is a lot of companies might realize they don't need a physical office to do the vast majority of what they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might still have one for us, you know, for some functions but it can probably be very much downsized and people like like you or, or frankly, even me, if, I, if we reconfigure it, can essentially just have a little spot where you could go set up your laptop and, and get to work uh, if you need to go into the office for any reason, but most of it can be done without stepping foot in a physical office. I bet you're gonna see that all over the country. I do really enjoy teleworking. I do think that I need an office though because it takes me so much longer to deal with like remoting into my computer and it just kicking me out every like so often. I think a lot of companies are going to have to address is how do you allow the work from home and make it a lot easier because remote remote connecting into your office desktop is not a fast process. I've done that before. It takes forever. You know, when I would remote work for the city and it, it was a pain in the butt. But of course, field work, you can't do remotely. Right. I can't I be on the job site remotely. <laughs> so, right. Some, some of that's never going to change. No, that's definitely true. I have a hard time keeping track of like just all my data sheets because they would normally like be in shelves on my, you know, in my office. Like these ones are entered. These ones need to be entered. These ones are pending because we have questions and these ones aren't done yet or whatever. But now it's just like a pile. I can't keep track of it. <laughs> you know, I definitely think once we have an office again, I will definitely tell it work more. Awesome. Well, thanks, dude. This has been awesome. I'm glad y'all are doing good. You too. Glad y'all are doing well. And it's been a lot of fun, like sharing some of these stories and what's going on over here from a different perspective. Hey, y'all. It's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. 
Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. <laughs>